All right, let's pray and get to work on our text here. Father, we are so thankful that we are here in your house to be fed, to receive your word, to sing. We have um, lived this last week in the world and our flesh and the devil have assaulted us at many levels and we're here to rest, to receive, to refresh our souls and to continue to build a biblical framework, a way of thinking about life that fits not only with the gospel but is helpful in the context of the world in which we live. And so I ask that you today would use this rather technical passage to help us understand your heart for people and how the church should conduct itself wisely in meeting the needs of those who are in crisis. So help us today, be our teacher, and help us to receive your word from you with gladness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard it said before that people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. What's implicit in that statement is the reality that you can proclaim the gospel, you can teach the gospel, you can tell people everything that you want, but the reality is unless there's a sense of concern and care for that person that you're talking to, your message, frankly, is invalidated. Jesus himself was full of something that the Bible says that we're also to be full of. John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was the perfect embodiment of two sides. Truth, what the Bible's all about, and grace, the way in which the gospel is platformed. We've put it this way before. Randy Alcorn says we need to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. See, while the church's primary mission is the proclamation of the gospel, the reality is, is the gospel is not often received when those who proclaim it don't live it out. And so we need to have this balance of grace and truth. So how we care for people, especially people within the church, is incredibly important because it serves to validate that we do indeed believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel message is simply this, that we're sinners, that we've made a horrible mess of our lives, we can't self-atone and be right with our Creator unless somebody else saves us from our own sins, changes our hearts. And the gospel message is simply that those who receive Christ as their Savior receive a new heart. God takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to them. He takes Christ's our sin and gives it to Christ. And in this beautiful divine exchange, God grants people forgiveness when they deserve judgment. That's the gospel. Those who understand this gospel then ought to live out the implications of this gospel, and that includes specifically how we care for other people. In other words, if you've understood that you've received this amount of grace, then you ought to be able to disseminate grace and give grace to others. It's that important, it's that urgent, and it's, it, it validates the gospel message in that respect. But here's the thing. Caring for people and dealing with the needs in their life is not an easy task. If you've ever gotten involved in the deep end of someone's life, you may have discovered, man, this is really complicated. Or you uh, start to care for somebody who's close to you and you begin to realize that caring for hurt pe- hurting people, while the right thing to do, is never the easy thing to do. Now this morning, in our text in 1 Timothy 5, we're going to extend this idea of family that Paul began talking about in verses 1 and 2. That's what we looked at last week. And we're going to examine in depth a particular scenario that Paul was dealing with in the church that Timothy was at in Ephesus in regards to the care of widows. 
what he's doing here is extending the theme that we saw last week in regards to how the church is to view one another as family. Last week we saw that within the context of the church, we have older men who Timothy is to treat as fathers, older women who he's to treat as mothers, younger men who he's to treat as brothers, and younger women who he's to treat as sisters in all purity. And the point of all of that is simply that the church is a family, that there's a commonality among us that binds us together. And and this week we dial into it a little bit deeper, looking at some practical matters about how the church was to care for widows. And in particular, how the church is to balance this grace and truth paradox. How the church is to be helpful, but to be helpful in a wise way. In other words, the church is to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth, but the church is to build those bridges of grace wisely and carefully. In other words, we need to think biblically about the way that we help people. So today we're going to talk about five implications or five principles of how we do compassion. And what Paul is addressing here are some very specific instructions for Timothy, who's in a bit of a a fix. He's trying to navigate the difficult pastoral waters of who do you help and who do you not help. And, And what is helping unhelpful? And you'll see that um, Paul attempts to give Timothy some guidance as to how he's to think about this situation. Now what we have in front of us is not an all-encompassing list, but rather gives us a snapshot about how we are to think about these things. So we're going to talk about widows, we're going to talk about caring for people, caring for people within our own families, things of that sort. And I need you to know that this text today is very technical. It's very specific about a very um, very um, specific problem that Paul was dealing with. And as I was thinking and praying about this this morning, it just dawned on me, while it's very specific to the situation in Ephesus, the reality is we all have something in common. We all have parents. And, and we all have mothers. We all have fathers. And all of us are, are getting older. And and we've got to think through, how do we think biblically about this? In fact, I would argue this is really important because in the midst of a culture that has a bit of an entitlement mentality, and I'm not speaking politically, but at the same time realize that there was a time in the history of the church when things like Social Security and retirement, that that basically was your kids (laughs) taking care of you and and a little bit of this entitlement mentality can sort of creep into the church. And so today what we're going to talk about is, seriously, what are the responsibilities of kids to their parents? And, and how do you navigate through some of these waters? And then what is the responsibility of the church to those who are in really significant need? And then what is your personal responsibility just for simply for the care of yourself? And so what Paul does here, I think, is give us some really practical suggestions, um, some principles on how to think about the matter of compassion. Now, Stu read for us uh, verses um, uh, 7 through 16. I want to back up and go to verse 3. We left off there last week because I wanted to put this all together. Look at verse 3. It says this, Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So, principle number one is this. Be helpful, but don't replace family. In other words, the church is to be helpful, but the church isn't supposed to replace family. It's rather interesting to me that just after Paul talks about the fact that we're family, 
older father, older men are fathers, older women are mothers, etc. He then gives a very specific qualification to what he has said. So we're family, but at the same time, the church shouldn't replace family in terms of compassion needs and meeting them. So in verse 3, we pick it up where Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. This word widow is an important word. It might not surprise you to know that the word widow means a woman without a husband. And typically we would assume that she's without a husband because her husband has died. But the word can also mean a woman abandoned by her husband. So it's not just a woman whose husband has died, but it's a woman who's been abandoned by her husband. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this text, says that given our present American culture, we should apply the definition of widowhood to a broader scope of people than what we might think. He writes this, Modern American culture has produced a category of women unknown in the first century, Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouse and left without family support. He says, godly single mothers are a new class of widow. So we could expand our definition here beyond just simply a woman whose husband has died. In other words, it's a a woman who has particular need. Now he says, honor widows who are truly widows. What does this mean? It almost seems as though there's some that are fake or more real than others. What does this mean? Well, Paul seems to take the broad category of of widowhood or women in this category, and he identifies that within this broader category of widows, there's a special class, a, a unique group that the church in particular needs to be concerned about. That there are some women some widows who have unusual circumstances. And and they are the ones that Paul defines here as true widows. It's not that the other widows aren't um, are, are fake or they're false, but what he's identifying is that within this arena of widowhood, there is a particular class of women that the church really needs to address. And the reason, as we'll see in a moment, is because nobody else will address those needs. You see, in ancient Near East, widowhood was exceptionally difficult because of the dynamics of both the economics and the cultural pieces that were in play. It was extremely difficult for a widow to care for herself if her primary income earner, her husband, had died. And whether it was intentional or not, those who were abandoned by their husbands and those whose... um, Husbands had died, were treated very poorly. The scales were tipped against them in the culture. And that's why the Bible so often takes up the cause of the widow. And for that matter, why it takes up the cause of the orphan. Really picturing God as being the protector of widows and the protector of orphans. In fact, look at Psalm 68. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him, father of the fatherless, protector of widows. God is in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. Aren't you glad that's in the Bible? Isn't it comforting to know that God himself is concerned about the protection of widows and the care of orphans? You know, I have personally seen God intervene in the life of those who are in deep need. It also means this, that if you fit that category of a woman or a child abandoned, if in your past there's a long track record and there's some pain 
Can you just take comfort in the fact that the Bible says that God sees, God knows, and God cares? God and His people are to honor those who've been abandoned. Now, the problem with this whole thing that Paul's trying to address here is, is that's what the Bible says and that's what the goal is. The problem was that whenever the church tries to meet needs, there's always things that happen, things that go wrong. And there were some widows who were taking this care that the church was providing and they were taking it too far. If you were to read on the rest of the text, and we'll get to this in a moment, you'll find that there were some younger women who were receiving financial support, but the result was that it created a problem in the church. Due to their age, due to their idleness, due to their bad theology, these younger widows were creating issues while still being supported with the church. And the effect was that some of them were leaving the faith and then bringing reproach on the name of Christ and the church. So... When I read this and started studying this, I just smiled because this, this is, this is perfect church right here. This is just the way things happen. You try and do something good and then something bad happens. You address the bad and something else happens. And try and help one group and then there's a difficulty. And so how do you navigate through the difficult waters that are implicit when you care for people and even specifically hurting people? And so what Paul does is he gives Timothy some guidelines. How do you care for these widows while also being wise? How do you meet the needs of really needy people at the same time not be enabling and so paul gives us some things here as to how to be really helpful verse four begins a series of qualifications so he says honor widows who are truly widows and then he gives a qualification in verse four if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of god so here we have Paul pointing Timothy back to the family first, essentially saying that if the widow has means of being cared for through family, then that is where compassion should start. It's really wise. It's really smart. It's very helpful pastorally to think this through. And it's interesting to note here that the church's compassion program was not meant to negate the family responsibility. Paul's rationale is twofold. First, He says that caring for one's family is the godly thing to do. He says, let them learn to show godliness to their own household. And then at the end it says, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, caring for one's own family, specifically one's own parents, is a means of fulfilling the fifth commandment to honor father and mother. So he just simply says, look, this is the right thing to do. But then secondly, he says this, that they are to make some return, to make some return to their parents. So it's not only a a godliness issue, there's also a fairness issue. What does he mean? He means, well, after all the years of care and protection that a mother has offered to her children, and think what would have happened if mom had stopped doing that. All of the years, you add up all the time, the hours that's been committed, it only makes sense that Children, it's only right that children would make some return to their parents. So children and grandchildren should care for their family members in the same way that they were cared for. Sometimes I run into people who are caring for adult parents, which is um, sometimes very hard and very difficult. And every once in a while I'll run into somebody who's got a bit of a bad attitude about it. And they're just like, this is so hard. 
And sometimes I want to say, well, I'm sure your mom said that about you too, right? It's just so hard. But she kept caring for you, and so you've got to keep caring for that. It's just simply the reverse of the roles, which Paul says is simply a matter of fairness. So the church should certainly be involved at some level, but not to such an extent that the family shirks their responsibility. Friends, I think this is really important for us to hear. In the midst of a culture that says, you know what, the 401K's got them, their life insurance has got them, Social Security's got them, the government's got them, the reality is all those things may be in play, but at the end of the day, the family has got to got them. That's not even good grammar, but you know what I mean. (laughs) The family's got to be there to support them. The church has to be helpful, but it shouldn't replace family. Now we'll talk more about what this means in a moment. Here's the second thing. Balancing this out, Paul also says, though, that need doesn't eclipse godliness. This is beautiful pastoral work here. In that, he says, look, family, you got to meet your responsibility, care for the widow. At the same time, be sure the widow remains godly. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone. There's the definition again. So the true widow is the one who's left all alone. No family to support, no network. It's The church is going to step in. It has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So he adds this qualification here as to what these widows are to be like. He says in verse 5 that she has set her hope in God, and continues in supplication and prayer. So she's not just been left alone. That's not just the only definition, but also that she is a godly woman. She's a woman who is fully relying on God and demonstrates her godly reliance by virtue of her prayer life. This is reminiscent of another Bible character named Anna. Remember her? In Luke chapter 2, who was a widow at the temple, was able to hold the Christ child, and the text says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So Paul says these true widows are widows that are not only in dire need, but they also understand the significance of their influence in terms of personal godliness. They have a vibrant, persevering prayer life. Don't miss the significance of this, especially, listen to me, especially if you're a woman or if you're caring for a woman in this situation. The problem with the loss and entering into this arena of widowhood, whether it's all alone or just the in general category of widowhood, is there can be a loss of identity and purpose when the woman is all alone. I mean, just because of the maternal nature of motherhood, a woman's role in family, it just seems sad when a woman is all alone. It's sad when a man's all alone, but there's something that's just worse. Wouldn't you agree about a woman who's just all alone? And in that position, this woman might feel unprotected, abandoned, and lonely, and might even wonder, what value or what role do I have? But yet Paul gives a great vision here of a very important role for widows, who in effect use the dire circumstances of their life, the hard providence that's caused them to have to depend upon God, and they use that as a platform for intercession, prayer, and worship. So if you're an older or abandoned woman, or if you care for one, let me encourage you that it may be that this woman or you can't do all the things that you used to do, which were so fulfilling, but there is one very meaningful and significant thing that you can do, and that is to pray. 
You can use the circumstances that have created God-centered desperation in your life to drive you to a life of prayer with deep impact. Just imagine a widow who's all alone, but yet she uses that time to pray through a list of children and grandchildren and missionaries and uses her pen and paper to disseminate the beauty of her prayer life to say, I've been praying, I've been praying, I've been praying. The power... But yet not all women, not all widows, live this way. Look at verse 6. The contrast is, but she who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. So there's this other group that is self-indulgent. What does he mean by this, self-indulgent? The word means, uh, it was tied to living in luxury, to living a materialistic lifestyle. Well, The, the problem here, that doesn't really fit because these are, are, are destitute women. So what does he mean? Well, he means not that they were materially wealthy, but that they had the attitude that went along with that. In other words, they were living for pleasure, living for self-centeredness, living selfish lives. So there are some widows, Paul says, who were taking church financial support, and yet they're being incredibly selfish and incredibly self-centered. Now, it's amazingly discerning here that Paul raises this issue. Because even though these women are in need, Timothy still has a pastoral responsibility to shepherd them, to speak into their life, to caution them and to warn them. And what's really helpful here is that just because a person is in need doesn't mean that she gets a pass on godliness. And for that matter, just because a person is in hard circumstances doesn't mean that they have the right to act in a self-centered or selfish way. So here's the beautiful balance of compassion and yet a call for godliness. And this is important because Timothy is called to shepherd these hard situations and hard circumstances, and no doubt it was emotional and challenging. And shepherding those emotional moments are very, very hard. In fact, this is one of the reasons why one of my seminary professors famously said, it's hard to do good theology in front of a crying woman. (laughs) What did he mean by that? He meant you better know what you believe because when you're standing in front of a crying woman and she asks you what you believe, you better know because you won't do good theology when you're standing right in front of a crying woman. The emotions of the moment will take over. It's hard to do good theology in front of a crying woman. So need does not eclipse godliness. Next, verses 7 and 8. Timothy is to help everyone understand the importance of compassion. He says, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Now, we're not sure who he's speaking to. He's probably speaking to all the groups involved, both families, the widows, and the entire congregation. He says, command these things, the word that we've seen him use twice before in this letter, referring to his pastoral responsibility to lead this church, tell them what they should do, get out in front of them. And he's calling them to embrace their God-given responsibilities. He's telling them, look, they need to own up to what their calling is here. And just to make that point even more obvious, look at verse 8. Paul gets really specific. This is a rough verse that's coming. Listen to it. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And all God's people said, wow, that's harsh, isn't it? That's tough. Why is he speaking this way? Why is he talking this direct? He's in effect saying that to neglect one's family isn't, essence to deny what christianity is all about 
If you've understand and embraced God's grace, then it seems you ought to care for people in general, and specifically you ought to care by those who are even closest to you. And therefore, if you neglect this care, Paul says it brings into question, legitimate questions, about whether or not you really understand what the gospel truly is. And, he adds, it's to act in a way that doesn't even measure up to the basic standards of decency and fairness. In other words, even worldly people who have never tasted the sweetness of God's grace know that you're supposed to take care of your family. That's what he's saying. I mean, you ever seen somebody out in the community, an old woman walking around, and in the back of your mind you're thinking, where is her family? Where's her son or daughter? Why, why is she here all by herself? It doesn't make any, it's just wrong, and it is. And what he says here, if that becomes the statement of your own life, it ends up reflecting poorly on what Christianity is supposed to be. As well, it seems that there was probably some significant neglect going on within the context of this church at Ephesus. It may have been that Timothy was confronting what Jesus dealt with in Mark 7, where spiritually-minded people, who neglected the heart of what spiritual life was all about, created spiritual-sounding excuses for not caring for their family. In Mark 7, verse 11, Jesus gets all over the Pharisees for creating a spiritual category called Corbin, where someone would say, well, I can't help my parents because I'm giving so much to God. And they would find a spiritual-sounding excuse to neglect the fifth commandment, and Paul would have none of that. So what he's saying here, and what Timothy is to charge his church, and what we need to hear, is that caring for hurting people and those left all alone just really fits with what Christianity is all about. It's not the gospel. It's not the main thing. But it is a thing, and an important thing that the church needs to do. To neglect this is a serious mistake. And yet when the church understands this, it platforms the gospel in a beautiful way. It just fits with what you would understand about God's grace. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, relates a story from the mission field that illustrates the beauty of what this looks like and when people gets it, when people get it. He recounted the story of missionary Joanne Shetler, who served in the Philippines for 20 years and through her ministry saw a particular tribe called the Balango, um, Balango, Gao, got it, there is, the Balangao tribe in Philippines come to faith in Christ and the entire culture of that tribe was transformed. In the course of time in their study, they came to 1 Timothy 5 and she wrote about their experience in this chapter. Here's what she wrote. We got to the end of the book where it talks about widows in need and the church's responsibility to take over for widows who have no other source of livelihood. About the same time, Forsan, one of those old women the spirits had earlier tried to kill, lost her husband. And she was a widow indeed. All her children had long been dead. She had no relatives in the Balango. In fact, she was not even a Balango. And in the Balango culture, there was no mercy if there was or is no blood connection. She would have been left alone in her house without food until she died. 
One of the men who helped me in the translation went over and took Forsan by the hand with her one little pot, brought her over and said, You will be like my mother and you will live with us in our home. And that woman is there today even though she is old and sickly. In other words, it just makes sense that gospel-loving, grace-experiencing people would care for those who are in need. And to fail in this task, especially if it's in your own family, is inexcusable and spiritually devastating. That's what the text says. Next, the fourth principle is this. Be careful how and to whom you give support. So Paul now deals with how should you think about who is qualified to receive support within the context of the church. And he gets really specific about what sort of people should be enrolled. Look at verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. In, In other words, there seems to have been some sort of formal program that was a part of the church's fabric. And it may have been that these widows were enrolled into a program that they not only received church support, but then they did and were involved in some sort of church ministry. In fact, by the third century in the church, there was an order of widows who did things such as prayer, nursing the sick, caring for orphans, visiting Christians in prison, evangelizing pagan women, teaching female converts in preparation for baptism. So these widows were somehow perhaps used in the church, and Paul is trying to help Timothy distinguish when do you bring somebody in and when do you say, no, no, they, they shouldn't be enrolled in this. So in verses 9 and 10, he gives some characteristics of the kind of women that should be supported. First, very specifically, he says, if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, I want to walk walk very carefully here. Um, I've chosen my words with very deliberateness. This was the traditional age of maturity. And it was also the age when remarriage was unlikely. Okay, And so at 60, and probably with some level of variance, um, a woman could be considered to be enrolled here. Secondly, she was to be the wife of one husband, meaning that she had been faithful in her marriage. And then she's to have a good reputation, verse 10, for good works, such as if she brought up children, she's shown hospitality, she's washed the feet of the saints, she's cared for the afflicted, she's devoted herself to every good work. In other words, this was a godly woman. So she used to be part of the, the church's financial benefit, provided that she was in, in need and that her godliness warranted it. Then Paul lists some very specific issues that Timothy needs to be aware and, and to be cautious about. Because there were some women who should not have, should not be enrolled, verse 11, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So Paul lists a a series of things that Timothy needs to use as his grid, that these younger women shouldn't be enrolled because, he says, their passions would get the best of them, that there was an element of self-centeredness, that they would be unfaithful, that there were some within the role and the enrollment of these this, this, this order of widows who were not being faithful to their their calling, so to speak. And that could be one of two things. Either that they had committed that they were going to remain unmarried and they were waffling on that, or secondly, that they were considering remarriage but being remarried to someone to whom they shouldn't have been. 
And so this person was considering this, and they were known in the church as being a part of this widow program. As well, these younger widows, there was a problem. They were guilty of some level of laziness. He describes it as idleness. They could have been doing something, but they weren't. And then finally, that there was some level of sinful words that was happening. As is often the case, this idleness led to other sins like gossip. In fact, in verse 13, it says they're going from house to house. So you get the sense that these younger widows were quite busy, busy doing the wrong things. And because of this, what Paul wanted Timothy to do was to solve this problem and choose the right women to be supported by the church and to be involved in ministry. I mean, this has the classic makings of a typical church problem. You got an issue, get the wrong people in it. How do you get the wrong people out? Keep the right people in. How do you know? What is your standard? What do you use? And it's just, that's why I love this book, because it feels so much. This is like church right here. How do you navigate through these difficult and tricky waters? So he's trying to help the church as a whole understand how and to whom you give support. And then finally, here's an overarching summary that Paul gives us in verses 14 to 16. And, and basically he just wraps it up in this conclusion as to, so what, what is a church? What are we to do? How are we to think about this? He says here, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion to slander. In other words, If a person can solve their problem, then do it. So what he's saying here is that the responsibility for the care of this person isn't primarily, first and foremost, on the church, and it's not primarily, first and foremost, on the family. It's incumbent on the individual. That if they could marry, Paul says, then do that. And live a full and happy and provided for life. A failure to do this would have negative results. Don't give the adversary occasion for slander. And then verse 16, if that's not possible, verse 16, he talks about the theme of family obligations. That if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. In other words, if this person can't meet their own needs, then family is to meet their God-given and natural responsibilities in this case. And then finally, he adds about the church. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And then he says, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Finally, he talks about when should the church be involved. The church, he in effect says, should be free to meet the needs of particular women who truly need it. Let the church not be burdened so that it can care for those who are truly widows. So what's the end game here? The end game, friends, is that people can truly have their needs met. The end game is for the church to know how to really care for those who need it. Family is supposed to do their part. Those who have other options individually should embrace their own solutions. And then the church should step in, be involved, and help, while at the same time recognizing that it can be really, really complicated. It can be a bit challenging. So, that's what the text is saying. Let me, in conclusion, just give you some pastoral thoughts. As I've been thinking about all of this, let me just give you some concluding thoughts. There's four. The first is this. So when I look at this text, I'm reminded that the church can really be helpful, but the church isn't ultimate. By that I mean this, that family obligations and even personal responsibility are an important part of the care question. It's an important part of the care equation. In other words, so who's supposed to help? 
Well, if I can change my circumstances and help myself, then I should. Or if family should could change their circumstances and help the situation, then they should. And if they can't, then the church should step in. And I think this is really helpful, especially in our the fabric of our culture that doesn't seem to think often about personal responsibility and then family responsibilities. For that matter, it also means this, that it's not enough to be sure that your family is well cared for. You must be sure that you are doing your part. So there's, there's some of you who I would suspect that you have family, that they're well taken care of because of a brother or sister that's doing a really good job. And I would just suggest that that's great that they're being cared for, but also for you to realize you also have a responsibility and you ought to think, what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is not just to be sure that they're well cared for. Your responsibility is to be sure that you're doing your part to fulfill the fifth commandment and to fit the heart of this text. Next, let me say this. When I look at this text, and I look at how much material, how much time Paul spent dealing with this, I'm just reminded that caring for people is messy work. It's hard. It's challenging. And so here's the thing. When you get into the deep end with someone, or with a family member, and you find yourself getting discouraged because, wow, this is hard. It's complicated. It's frustrating. It's nebulous. It's never easy. You ought to know, yep, that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Be encouraged. You're right where you should be. After first service, I had two folks up here just with tears in their eyes saying, Oh, I needed to hear that because it's hard. Yep, it is. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And look at the text in 1 Timothy 5. It looks hard. And yet, as I've said before, hard is hard. It's not bad. There's a difference. Third, as I went through this text, I was just reminded that, you know, the Bible calls us to honor our parents, calls us to honor our grandparents. And frankly, I think that in simple and significant ways, this needs to be a higher value in our Christian circles. It just seems that we kind of lose this. Or maybe we've lost it. Maybe not. But I, I think we maybe have a little bit. I was reminded of this um, some time ago. One of our staff guys was commenting that over the weekend he received a call from one of his children. He said, craziest thing. They just called and wanted to talk. And I said, really? He said, yeah, usually they call because they want something. And I was like, oh, rats. So I got on the phone and called my parents. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, just, 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 just wanted to, to, you know, just see how you're doing and Everything okay over there in Indy Mark? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. And you don't need anything? I was like, oh no, guilty, guilty, guilty. And, and I'm just thinking about, you know what? What's it like to be in a parent or grandparent's shoes when you launch kids? In fact, I had a parent afterwards go, oh, I wish my kids were here to hear this sermon. So, so if you get one with like a gift card, to, you know that it's a gift plus, okay? So mom and dad sent you something as a little bit of a hint. And finally, let me just say this, a word to widows. Listen, if in God's providence you find yourself abandoned, remember, God has not forgotten you. You can still have great opportunities for ministry. And then here's the thing. And when your family tries to help you, or someone tries to help you, as hard as it is, let them, while being grateful for God's help through them. See, the church of Jesus Christ is called to care at many levels and in different ways. But the thing is, is that Paul wants us to care about how we care. 
Because it's not just about our care, it's actually about how we live out the gospel. That people could be able to see the way in which we love one another and take care of people around us and go, my, there's something really different about you people. And that we would say, yes, there is. We've experienced the beauty of God's grace. So we're to build these bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. We're to care for people, but we are to do so wisely, thoughtfully, personally, and we're to do it in light of the beauty of the gospel that we've received. Father, we want your blessing to be upon what Don is doing in this body, caring for widows within our church, caring for um, people who've been abandoned, uh, people who are hurting and in need. We we need Don to help us know how to help families meet needs and how to navigate the complicating waters, complicated waters of care and benevolence. And um, we want to be a church that ignites a passion to follow Jesus by connecting people in their circumstances with the very Word of God. We want to be able to meet people's needs and help them see what the love of Jesus looks like. So would you help us to to do that, help us to care with all of the gusto that the gospel should bring. Lord, thank you for this important instruction. It's, it's technical, it's very specific, but in the midst of our culture and how we might think, it's a really helpful reorientation. And I think, I think we need words like this. We need days to be reminded of what it means to really care and what our responsibilities are. So for those who care, for family members who know the ache and the hardship and the joy of caring for family, I pray you'd give them special grace today. And we thank you for being a God who is the defender of the defenseless, is a protector of the widow, is a father to the fatherless. What a great God you are. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need someone to pray with, we have some folks that will be up here this morning. You may be caring for someone and like, man, I just need someone to pray for us. We're in the throes of it. They're here to bless you, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.